Well, one of the values that we have here is being a people who take the truths of God's word and think about our lives and really say, how do we take the truth of Jesus and use it to impact all of our lives? That includes the way we work, that includes the way we uh, are a spouse, that includes the way we parent, that includes the way we recreate. And so we want to think about all of our lives in relation to Jesus and the good news and think about how it should change us. And one of the ways that we talk about doing that is really being a family together. It's kind of twofold. One, being a family who loves each other, but also uh, thinking about our own unique families and, and how do we help our families to love Jesus Christ. And last week, uh, one of the things I love to do is just share with you ways in which we're growing and ways in which God is working in our midst. And so last week was, was Easter Sunday and, and just exciting to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I don't know what you do after the service always, but, but last week for some reason I ended up downstairs with one of our kids coming up to me and showing me and saying, hey, Pastor Derek, look at the notes that I was able to take from the sermon. That was awesome. Kids wanting to hear the truth of the gospel, taking notes. I said, hey, I would love to talk with you more about what you heard. And, and the response was, yeah, let's do that. How cool is that, church? That's what we want to see all throughout our families to see our kids wanting to know the truth of the gospel and, and us as parents helping them to do that. And so let me pray praising God for that, but then also asking that he would do that in all of our families here to see more of that take place. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth and the reality just of how you change lives. You don't just change lives when they're 18, but you change lives when they can be 5, 10, 15, and and so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this young child who wanted to hear the sermon, who wanted to grow, wanted to know more. I pray for us as parents that we would desire that for our kids. God, that we would create environments so our kids would hear the truth of the gospel. That our kids would see that Jesus, that you are better. I pray that that is shot all throughout our lives, Lord. We want to be a kind of church that embodies that. Lord, we just ask in your son's name, amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. And Philippians is about three quarters of the way through. It's after First and Second Corinthians, then it goes Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you if you're sitting in the numbered rows. And we're going to be in Philippians, and we're just switching gears, if you will, to really look at this letter to this church at Philippi over the next seven or eight weeks. And I just got to say, I've been excited to one, get to this series and excited to preach this series to the point when I was going over it this morning, I immediately told my wife, we could be here for a couple hours. So I'm gonna do everything I can to, to limit it to at least one hour. But there's just so much that God wants to show us here. 
Because we live in a moment right now in which if all you do is just look outside, you see the world trying to tell us that, that we need to have joy. We need some sort of source of happiness or satisfaction. And yet every single thing, every single way they say we get joy or we get satisfaction ends up leaving us joyless. And so the world is clamoring for more. And every avenue of more actually leaves us with less. And we're going to look at that this morning. Years ago, I was uh, working with college students in uh, Freiburg, Germany. And if you've ever been to Europe or spent any uh, length of time in Europe, you will realize that there is one thing that they idolize more than anything else. Not even their beer kind of tops this. There's one thing that is more important than anything else, and that is a thing called football. Not the American one that doesn't use your feet at all. The, the one with the soccer ball that actually uses your feet. And it's amazing to see how much the, the world over there shuts down when there's a national football game going on. I remember uh, one time in particular, we were supposed to have a, a weekly meeting, a gathering of about 100 students, and, and it was competing with the national soccer team who was playing in a, a European tournament. And to, uh, I got outvoted to my chagrin. They, they decided to cancel the weekly meeting because football was more important. I remember sitting in this room with about 50 or 60 students and a few other uh, staff and just watching the game as Germany just dominated the soccer match. And by the end of the match, when the final whistle blew, students were high-fiving each other, jumping up and down, giving each other hugs. And it was just kind of crazy to think over one match. And then we went outside now, mind you, where we were watching the match was downtown. And so we went outside, and as we uh, began to walk through downtown, it was flooded with tens of thousands of people dancing, cheering, chanting the na national anthem. One person, uh, vividly, I can remember one person putting the German flag down and bowing down to the flag. It was so packed that the trams that typically ran straight through the middle of town had to actually stop on the outskirts of town to pick people up. And as I walked through the city, seeing the elation, the excitement that people had over one match 13 years ago that changed none of their life. It wasn't even like they won the championship. My heart just broke about the sad reality of how something that really has no impact on our lives can elicit that kind of emotion and that kind of response. And then even sadder part for me is that's exactly how I respond. When my Dodgers win, when my college basketball team almost makes it to the championship game, when my football team goes to the Super Bowl, 
And the reality is that if we were to put it on a scale of one to 10 and we were to, to look at our emotions and look at the excitement that we get, 10 being the most excited that we can, and we take that scale to our favorite sports team or, or favorite concert or whatever it might be, typically our emotions are on the, on the higher end of the scale. They're, they're topping nines, they're topping tens. And yet if we take that same scale to our relationship with Jesus, if we're honest, we hit about a five or a six. So something that has no eternal value, that that really doesn't change my life, can top the scales, even blow the top off of the scales. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, we just kind of walk around or act even as if it's no big deal. As if he's no big deal. And the reality is, is that is a massive problem for us. And here's why. Because to live for Jesus Christ is no longer going to be cool. If you just look at the horizon of what it means to follow Jesus Christ... The world around us and the decisions that are being made around us are going to make it harder to live for Jesus. And so if we can't have joy in Jesus when it's easier, we're definitely not going to have joy in Jesus when it's harder. And if we don't have joy in Jesus when it's harder, I wonder if we will stay with Jesus. So we've got to be a church that figures out how to have joy in Jesus despite the circumstances. Because it has a single, uh, single effect to either draw us closer to him or cause us to wander, leaving him forever. And so we're going to look at this letter to the Philippians to really get a sense of how do we have joy in Jesus despite the circumstances. And as we do, Paul is going to kind of jumpstart us this morning in the first 11 verses. And he's going to really try to shape our reality. And as he does, he's going to do it in a circular way. What he's going to show us is that personal gospel joy should lead to universal gospel partnership. But it's circular Because the more we partner with others for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ, the more it leads to joy. And the only way we can partner is because we have joy in Jesus. And we want to grasp this joy over the next eight or nine weeks so that we can can have this buttress us as we move forward as a society. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And so as we do, would you stand with me? We believe that this is God's word. We want to honor him and we want to come hungry receiving it this morning. And so our standing posture is just an honor of the Lord God who is speaking to us now. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in 
every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernments, so you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are looking at the letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And Philippi is a Roman colony along the Via Ignatia, which is the massive Roman road that connected the entire empire together. And this city of Philippi was kind of a miniature Rome. They wanted to emulate and imitate Rome. And so just walking through the city, you'd see... uh, pictures or, or architecture that would remind you of Rome's great power or their great wealth. And it was a city filled with, with retired Roman soldiers. And so this was like the second Rome, if you will. And Paul, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, you will see that Paul and Silas are ministering in what is present-day Turkey. And as they are ministering there, they receive a vision that calls them to go into and commands them to go into Macedonia. And so as they get that call, they go into Macedonia, and one of the first cities they reach is Philippi. And as they reach the city, they're on the lookout for people who might be interested in the good news of Jesus. And so they come across a lady named Lydia, who is a Merchant, She sold fine goods. And as they share the good news with her, she comes to faith in Christ. And then the story goes on how there's a woman who uh, has all of these demons and she is a slave woman. And Paul comes up to her and he casts the demons out and immediately her owners, so Apparently, she's been doing some good things to make money off of that she has multiple people who own her. The owners come and arrest Paul and throw him into jail. And we read that Paul and Silas are in jail, and it says, at midnight. So I don't know about you, but my eyes like to see uh, the back of my eyelids by about 10 o'clock. And it says that they were in jail at midnight, shackled, singing praises to God. Again, I don't know about you. That's a brother I want to know and I want to learn and sit at his feet and say, teach me about joy. 
I've never been in prison and I don't like being up at midnight. And you put those two together and you're singing praises to God, the very reason that you're in jail. You've got something I want. And at that moment, God intervenes and an earthquake happens. And as the uh, prisoners begin or could begin to escape, Paul and Silas just camp there. And the Philippian jailer, thinking that he's lost his prisoners, is about to take his own life. When Paul steps in and says, well, we're still here. And God uses that to bring the Philippian jailer to faith in Jesus Christ. We see the next morning Paul and Silas are released. And then Paul goes on with his ministry. And now about 13, 14 years later, Paul is now re-imprisoned for teaching about Jesus Christ. And as he is re-imprisoned, he's writing this letter. And notice in verse 1 what has transpired. It's no longer Paul and Silas, but it's Paul and Timothy, his son in the faith. And they are writing this letter to the church at Philippi, and he is writing to all the saints, and he's writing to the overseers and the deacons. Church, churches should have structure, and it's good when they do. And we see the structure. We see overseers or elders who are called to shepherd the people. We see deacons who are called to serve the people. And then we see the the congregation as a whole. And yet Paul writes to all of them. Because as we'll see in the coming weeks, he wants them to understand the good news of Jesus. To the point that he wants it to change the way they think about life, change the way they act, change the way they respond to the point that we will see in chapter 4, verse 2, that there are two women in the church not getting along, and Paul wants the entire church to help them to get along. Because Paul, uh, Paul cares all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now this morning, in, in, in light, to really try to move us in that direction, Paul is going to begin to just show us joy. He wants us to have joy, and he ties this joy with partnership. And he shows us three kinds of partnerships. One that he rejoices in, one that he longs for, and one that he says we should be confident in. So let's look at these three partnerships. The first partnership that he shows us is the outward partnership. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. Paul says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul just begins right away. He immediately says, praise God. When I think of you, I'm praising God. Church, that is crazy if you think about it. Because as I just stated, in a few chapters, he's going to say, there's a massive problem in this church and it needs to get fixed. And yet, despite that problem, he is able to see the sovereign hand of God working, God's controlling hand at work, that he's able to praise God for them. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't praise them. He praises God for them, for the work that God has already begun 
to do. And he's just praising them. He's, he's just praising the Lord. Every time he prays, he is thanking God. And this is, this is massive. A few months back, I read a, a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And the whole premise of the book is that how did we get to the stage in society that we are where just everybody is at each other? And these are non-Christian authors. And one of their premises was that the way in which, or the reason that we are at this stage now is that we have this us versus them mentality. That if you don't agree entirely with me, you're my enemy. This is crazy. This is what we feel. And yet Paul is saying, hey, I don't agree with everything in this church. And yet I know God is in control and I can still praise God for what's going on. To the point it feels like Paul's almost gushing over them, doesn't it? Look at verse 4. Every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Every prayer. It, Does this mean that every single time Paul prayed, he's praying for them? We don't know. But no matter what, regularly he is remembering them in his prayer. He cares about this church, which is amazing. Because notice what they do. Why is he making his prayer with joy? Verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thanking God for this church because of the work that God has done in this church. Notice, he's not doing this out of duty. He is doing this out of delight in Jesus. Church, do you pray for other people here? Do you know other people's names here well enough that you're regularly praying, not out of duty, but because you delight in Jesus? That's what Paul's doing. And the reason he's doing is doing that is because of their partnership. Four, 13, 14 year gap. He says, from the first day until now, you have partnered. He's going to say in chapter 4, verse 10 that they have revived their concern for Paul, that they have financially partnered with Paul because they want to see churches started and they want to see others come to know Jesus. And so they partnered with Paul. And Paul says that makes him joyful, which is crazy because we're going to continue to read next week that Paul is in prison and yet they're still partnering with him. That it is hard to live the Christian life to the point that people will not like it. And sometimes I'm finding that people who call themselves Christians don't like it. We'll read later that there are people who called themselves Christians but made themselves enemies of the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ calls us to suffer and they didn't want to take that road. Yet despite all of that, this church continues to partner with Paul. And he's excited 
that they're partnering financially, that they're praying for him, that they are, feels like that they are in the trench with Paul. A number of years ago when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, the only way that you could uh, actually work with college students was that you had to raise financial support. And so for me to leave here and, and go to Germany, I had to raise $5,300 a month, which is kind of chump change today. <laughs> that was 12, 13 years ago. But to think about $5,300 a month I had to raise that would constantly come in just through donation of people. And the way they trained us, they said, write a list of 200 people, 200 family units, and then categorize that list and then start going after those who you think would be most likely to give, those who would be maybe, and then those you think, I'm just not sure. And there were people that I contacted who, who I knew who then would say, hey, contact these other 10 people. And as I would contact them, I had no idea who they were. Some of them had never met them. I could have stood in line at the grocery store right behind them, would have no idea who they were. I remember going into a meeting, sitting down with them, and, and some of them saying, yeah, we'll give you 100 a month, or we'll do 200 a month, or we'll do 400 a month, or we'll do 500 a month. And some of them still support the church to this day. And I have met them about six or seven times total in my life. But there's one thing I can tell you, every time I see them, it's a joy. Our hearts are knit together, unlike any other relationship. Because I know that they are in the ministry with me. They're praying and they're financially partnering. Church, that happens here. Did you know that there are 10 people, individual people, and three churches who financially partner so that we could gather together and that we can make Jesus known in some very and across our valley. That is amazing. That should arise joy in you. Joy to the Lord, because these churches are, are saying enough that we want to be in the trench with you. We're going to send support. We're going to pray. We're going to care for you. And Paul says that that brings him incredible amounts of joy because they have been about the kingdom of God. They weren't about the church at Philippi. They weren't thinking, oh, we got to keep all the money here because the church of Philippi matters. No, we know that the church of Philippi is not what we're going to be worshiping when we're in heaven. We're going to be worshiping the king of the church at Philippi. So I don't care about the name of Sunbury City Church. I care about the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to have a kingdom perspective. It's not about us. It's about the good news of Jesus going forward. And when the good news of Jesus goes forward, it breeds joy in our lives. I know this to be true because uh, with our history, we've known a lot of people who who have given their lives to go around the world. And a few of them, by God's grace, we've been allowed to support or had the ability to, to just support. And it, whenever we receive their newsletters and just hear of what God is doing around the world, my heart just gets excited. Because the news tells us that Jesus is dead. 
at the news these missionaries tell me, he is alive and well all around the globe. And yet, this is not the only kind of support Paul wants. In fact, Paul does, let me, let me just back up a, a moment. Paul wants us to partner. He is commending this in such a way that he wants all of us to be a part of this. And so I want to encourage you to think about this. How can you partner to see the good news of Jesus to go forward? There, there are just kind of three easy ways. One is, do you see Jesus as better? Do you actually see Jesus as better, worthy to sacrifice to see the good news of Jesus to go forth? Second, have you budgeted? If you're not on a budget and you don't know what you can give to see the good news of Jesus go forward, you're missing out. Paul is inviting us in. He's saying that the path to joy is to join Jesus in what he's doing. And then we actually take that step and we start partnering with people who are taking the good news across this valley and across the world. And when we do that, Paul says, he rejoices over that. And we get more joy. But then there's a second kind of partnership that Paul wants us to have, and that is an inward partnership. So jump down to verses 9 and 10 with me. He wants a kind of partnership that, that takes place with inside this church. He is rejoicing in what God has already done in the church, but he's not satisfied with that to the point that he's just kind of resting on his laurels. He wants more for them. He sees this church and he longs for God to do more work inside of them. And notice what he, what he shows us. He's showing us that Christianity is a life of constantly striving for more of Jesus Christ. He wants them to grow. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He wants them to continuously Grow. You know, too often in our Christian faith, we become complacent. And the reason why we become complacent is we start to compare ourselves to others and think, I'm doing okay. And oftentimes, what I find is we have kind of a bottom shelf Christianity. If you've ever had little ones, and there's items that you want them to get because you want to train them, what do you do? you put them on the bottom shelf. And as they get older, you move it up some shelves to train them and show them how to reach, how to grab, how to, how to operate life. And my concern is that many of us may have grown complacent because we're still operating on the bottom shelf. We might be older in age, but we kind of look foolish because we keep hunching over, grabbing something down here. When Paul says we should be growing and grabbing things up here. And what does he want them to grow in? He wants them to grow in love. He wants it to abound more and more and more. This is him setting up chapter 4, verse 2, where these two women are fighting in the church. And he wants the entire church to understand love to the point that it actually causes them to intervene into this church squabble. 
Now, why would Paul care? Because church squabbles uh, cause our focus to turn away from Jesus and away from his mission onto something else. And it causes us to lose momentum in the things of God. And it's a tactic of Satan to divert our attention. So he wants them to have love and he wants them to grow in this love because if we don't, we're going to start focusing on anything but Jesus Christ. And church, we've got to be careful about this because I've been in church life long enough. I've been around enough churches. I practically grew up in the church. Love within the church is a difficult thing to have and to grow in that love is hard to have. It is much easier to have backdoor conversations than to have love for each other. You know what I mean by that? Backdoor conversations. Did you hear that they did this? Did you see that? Much easier to have those kind of conversations which lack love than have what Paul is saying, where we have a love and Notice how he characterizes this love. He defines it. It's not just this ambiguous love. It's a love that has knowledge in all discernment. That he wants them to know what love actually looks like. Not to have your own view of love. We just spent three months looking at the world's view of love and how that does not satisfy and how we need the true view of love. And what Paul often shows us is that the true view of love is where we are pressing in. We are not basing things on our feelings, but on the word of God which often calls us to to love enough that we would challenge, that we'd call out and we'd say this way to Jesus. You see, so often we, we try to encourage people. And what I find is all we're doing is we're trying to make people feel good about themselves so that we would feel good about that. That's not love. That's loving yourself. You get that? When my whole intent is to make you feel good so that then I get something out of that, I don't love you, I love me. Paul's saying, no, I want love. And the kind of love that I want to play out is a love where you engage these two people who are in conflict and try to help them to reconcile. That's love, that's challenge. But I want it to have knowledge. I want it to have a discernment. It's a, it's a love where we begin to see that the Bible calls us to be tied to a church. You know, the Bible shows us, the New Testament shows us 59 commands of one another. Care for one another, love one another, shepherd one another, call out sin in one another's life. It shows us all these one another's. The only way that we can love and have that love abound is if we are tied to a body of Christians. And he wants it to have knowledge. He wants it to have discernment so we would know the best way to actually love people. And then he shows us, well, let me say, discernment matters. Because oftentimes we can love in a way that, that hurts, not helps. Discernment matters. You know, if you've been in the church for a period of time, you may have heard statements like, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Sounds right. Sounds believable. Without discernment, you'll buy it. 
The Bible doesn't say any of that. The Bible actually says God helps those who can't help themselves. That we were dead, needing Jesus' help when he came and rescued us. So we got to have discernment. And then he tells us why. Look at verse 10. So we might approve what is excellent and pure and blameless. He wants us to not have any, any uh, selfish motives. He wants our heart to be right to the point that people can look at our lives and they can see the work of Christ happening in us, that, that, that we'd be pure, we'd be blameless. And notice for when? For the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is expanding their vision of love. He's saying, don't love for the present. Don't love for what you feel right now. Don't love for what you get in the moment. Love for the day of Christ because Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming to judge the living and he's coming to judge the dead. He's lifting their eyes and he says, Jesus for you will either be a loving savior or a judge. You see, what he's going to show us in chapter 2, verses 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he's going to show us that, that we have a problem. We have a problem that has separated us from the God of the universe. And the unfortunate part about it is that the problem is not what we have done. The problem is not something out there. The problem is me. The problem is the fact that I have a nature that rebels against God and there's no way I can fix that problem. And so God in his wisdom sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh. And as he did, he was obedient to the Father, so obedient that he actually died. And he died in a way that he received cursing for our sin. And yet he rose from the dead. And as he rose, he gave us freedom. There was an exchange that took place that the one who knew no sin became sin so that we might get the righteousness of God, so that we might be made right with God of the universe. That exchange happened to set us free. And now if we believe in Jesus, when when he comes back, he's going to take us to be with him forever. And yet if we don't believe him in him, he's going to judge us and condemn us. And Paul wants us to look at love in light of that. I think everybody in this room either experienced it as a parent or even as a kid. You know that when your parents are around, you operate a little bit different, right? And when your parents are in the other room, you, you kind of sneak some things by them. But man, the moment your parents are in that room looking at you, you're doing everything. You're crossing, you're crossing your T's, you're dotting your I's, you're doing everything perfect. And to some extent, there's goodness in that, right? To some extent, that, that's good because it is helping to shape little ones to know what is right and what is wrong. And Paul is saying that the day of Jesus Christ should shape us to know what is right love and what is wrong love. 
should shape us to know how to love the church and not love the church. So we would have this vision of when Jesus returns, am I living and loving in light of that or in light of myself? He wants us to know this. He wants us to lift our eyes up. And so how do we do that? Some of the ways that we lift our eyes up is that we need to loosen our grip on the things of the world. We read this in 1 John, right? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, John tells us that if we love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in us, that there are opposites. You either love God or you love the world. And some of us are not loving others because we're so gripped by the things of the world. And John and Paul would say, loosen your grip on the things of the world. And look at the things that are eternal. Because when you look at the things that are eternal, you begin to see what really matters. You begin to see how to love people well. And so church, we've got to be a people who stop filling our houses with junk. We've got to be a people who stop uh, going to shopping therapy. My life is a little bit out of kilter, and so I'm going to go buy something. I know that. I do that. Look at, look at my office. There's, there's books galore that I haven't read. But instead of running to spending, or instead of running to food, instead of running to entertainment, we need to be a people who loosen our grip on the world and run to the one that can actually produce joy, which is Jesus Christ. That's where Paul lands us with our third partnership, and that is an upward partnership. In between the outward and the inward, right in the middle, almost like a sandwich, he shows us the meat. And that's this, that's this upward partnership. Look at verses 6 to 8. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows who started this work, and it's not them. He's not praising God because they've done something spectacular. He's praising God because he is spectacular. And he knows a reality. He knows two realities. He knows that there's a now and that there's a not yet. He knows that in this moment, When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declared right with God. That's justification. That's present. We experience that now. He knows that. He rejoices in that. But he also knows that there's a second reality that we have not arrived there yet. That we are not perfect. And that there is this process in which the good news of Jesus should enter our life and change every aspect of our life. That's sanctification. And Paul says the one who began it is surely going to complete it. That's good news. Because I like to start a lot of things. I don't like to finish a lot of things. And when I do, I break them. 
book. The one who began the good work will bring it to completion. He knows that the Holy Spirit who started this work is going to continue that work in their lives and is going to continue to form them in the way where they will eventually see Jesus face to face and and we will look like Jesus. We will image Jesus. No more sin. And so Paul is showing us that the way that we have this outward partnership and the way we have this inward partnership is by having the upward partnership where the Holy Spirit of God is working in us. And then notice what he says in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because you're partakers of grace. Paul's saying that there's a camaraderie that happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some of my closest friends throughout my life have been people I would not normally hang out with other than Jesus Christ. I can think about a, a number of friends from my past who we are close, not because we like the same things, not because we are the same personality, but they love Jesus and they're going hard after Jesus. And I want to love Jesus and go hard after him. And we are linked together in friendship. And Paul says, I rejoice because you're partakers with me of this grace. There's this camaraderie that happens when we experience Jesus to the point that it has led them to care for Paul in his imprisonment and in his defense and in the confirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he just says, God's my witness. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul has gone through the fire with this church and as a result, he loves them. That's because they love Jesus. Church, there's nothing that will bring you greater joy than loving Jesus and finding others who love Jesus and linking your life with them. There's no, if you don't get that, there's no point on going further in joy because that's the foundation. And Paul has found it. And then notice what he says in verse 11. He desires something for them. He wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants them to have tangible evidence of the Holy Spirit working inside of them, producing fruit in them to the point that God gets glory. And the more God gets glory in your life, the more God is praised in your life. That's why we sing. We don't sing as filler to just kind of like the pre-sermon and post-sermon. No, we sing to set our hearts right so that we would find Jesus as joyful, that Jesus is our treasure. And Paul says, I want that to be true. I want your life to glorify God. And in doing so, you get joy. You know, everything right now wants to rob you of joy, it wants to get your eyes focused off of Jesus and focused on you. Everything out there right now wants to create all sorts of anxiety, all sorts of depression, all sorts of discouragement. Everything wants to shame you, wants to cancel you, wants to call you out, wants to push you down, wants to label you. 
all an attempt to give you joy, and all of it is about you. And Paul says, you want joy? Make it all about Jesus Christ. From start to finish, the key to joy is your life being about Jesus. So the offer is on the table. Are you going to continue to look for joy in the way that the world is telling you, leaving you more anxious, leaving you more joyless? Or are you going to say, Jesus, you're better. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want to glorify you. I want to honor you. Would you help me? Because it's only then that you'll experience joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of this chapter, the truth of these verses, the reality that joy comes not in looking at ourselves and putting ourselves at the center, but joy comes from putting you at the center. And so, Father, I pray, would you help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and get them onto you? Lord, as we are about to, to transition and sing, Lord, I pray that we don't sing out of duty, but we sing out of delight, knowing that you are a treasure worthy of selling everything to get. And that we would treasure you so much that we would sacrifice to ensure that the good news of Jesus goes around the world and that we would sacrifice knowing that we need that good news and that the men and women in the pews around us need that good news. And so I will engage to love with knowledge and discernment, even though it might hurt. And so, Father, I pray that we would receive that offer that you have for us this morning. In your son's precious name, amen.